had no idea at all that that was going to be a life-changing thing. I, I only took a one week off work to make that first delivery, and I expected to go back to, to work on the, on the salmon farm uh, as normal. And, uh, you know, I suppose, like a lot of things, it's interesting to look back on it many years later in hindsight and try and make sense of it. And because I certainly was not qualified, and I'm still not qualified, to, to lead a mission like, like this. I suppose I'm, I'm in a way grateful, but I, I didn't have an awareness of what could happen. I think it would have frightened me, to be honest. Hi, I'm Nick Minton, and welcome to Now to Next, the podcast where I interview some of the top experts and professionals all across the globe to talk about what's happening now and what you can expect next. Hey, everybody, Nick Nanton here. Welcome back to Now to Next with Nick Nanton. I've got a great guest today uh, that I was just recently introduced to, and I can't wait to introduce you as well. So I'm going to give you a brief bio, and then we'll get into what I know will be a fascinating interview. So let me uh, do a brief bio here. Uh, Magnus McCarlin Barrow is the founder and chief executive of Mary's Meals, a global hunger charity that provides a daily meal in a place of education for more than, get this, 1.6 million of the world's poorest children. The meals serve as a way to attract, attract children to the classroom where they can gain a basic education that provides an escape route from poverty. A uh, fascinating idea, which we're going to talk a lot about. In 2010, Magnus was named as a CNN hero for his role in founding and running Mary's Meals. And in April 2015, he was named as one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. Magnus's first book, The Shed That Fed a Million Children, reached the UK's prestigious Times and Sunday Times bestseller list immediately after it's released. His second book, Give, Charity and the Art of Living Generously, comes out next month. That's uh, why I've got him on here. And offers a deep understanding of true charity and demonstration of the positive role it can play in all of our lives. Uh, Magnus, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me on. It's uh, so I can tell you have a deep uh, Southern American accent. Uh, no, so you are you based in Scotland, correct? Yeah, I'm up in the hills in the in the highlands of Scotland in my little shed here in the middle of nowhere. Uh, awesome. And so you started out as a, I mean, your career as a salmon farmer. Tell me about this. I've been salmon fishing, but how do you farm salmon? Well, it's quite a big industry, actually, in, in Scotland. And uh, it's about huge, big floating uh, cages or offshore in, in the ocean. Uh, it's an industry that began in the 1980s and has grow, grown to quite a, quite a size. Uh, so, yeah, I did that, did that for six years, uh, working out in the sea. Some of it was good fun. Winters weren't so much fun, I have to be honest. Uh, but, yeah, it was a good life. I got it. And all right, so as so many times it happens in life, you were hanging around having a pint with your brother, uh, which sounds like the right thing to do in Scotland. So we support that. <laughs> and so, and you saw uh, something on TV that touched you, I guess, that affected you. You had no idea the way it would, where it would affect the rest of your life. But just tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it was just a, a typical uh, Saturday night at that stage of my, in my life, going out, out to the pub uh, to, have a, to have a few drinks and, and, but before we went to the pub, we'd watched this news bulletin, uh, which had been a report on uh, the war that was taking place in, in Bosnia at, at that time. It was, it was the height of that, that conflict. And there was a report about how refugees were, were suffering so badly at that time. And I suppose it felt very different to us for a few reasons. It felt so close. You know, it was, 
the other side of Europe, but the, the, the thought of of a war taking place in in Europe in our own lifetimes and and for people to be suffering uh, that way. And uh, we'd actually been to that part of the world when we'd been younger, so we felt really moved by it. And as you do over a, over a pint of beer, we began hatching plans. We started saying, "Wouldn't it be great if we could even just do something, you know, small to help those people?" And and before we even really had a a proper plan. Uh, the next day, we just began saying to family and friends, "You know, can we collect? Can we collect some stuff, some food and clothing and and basic things? You know." And I, I always say that was the first uh, the first miracle in the story was really that about three weeks after having that conversation in the pub, we found ourselves driving this little truck out of Scotland. It was certainly the first time I ever hatched a plan over a beer with my brother that actually that actually worked, that actually happened. So that was amazing enough. Yeah, I love it. And so well, I, I have just this, uh, it was a, it was a secondhand Land Rover, right? That you, that you bought. Yeah, that's I, right. Absolutely. I'm just jealous of that anyway, because we don't get the good <laughs> ones here. I mean, the good ones, like a good defender here is like a, a, a reconditioned one is like 200,000 US. I mean, it's ridiculous. Oh, right? wow. We, we can't get the good ones here anymore. They, they, for whatever reason. So that just is sexy <laughs> in and of itself, just traveling across Europe to Bosnia. All right. So you had visited Bosnia once before, which is, I, I would find unusual anyway. Is that a normal trip? You took a trip with your family uh, due to your Catholic heritage, it sounded like, but still doesn't sound like a normal thing that every family is like, oh, this year we're going to Bosnia, kids. Uh, tell us more about that. Yeah, it's kind of unusual. It's not not a normal trip. Certainly wasn't then. It was still a communist country at that at that time, behind the Iron Curtain, so to speak. We'd, we'd been raised as a devout Catholic family. Uh, we've been to places where uh, there is a belief that the Virgin Mary has appeared, places like Lourdes in France. And and so we, we read in the early 80s, when I was that young teen- teenager, we read this article saying there's a report that the Virgin Mary is appearing uh, in this tiny village in Bosnia, which we'd never heard of before. And we started saying to our parents, if, if that's even possibly true, we should go. And, and to our surprise, they said, well, we're kind of busy right now. If you guys want to go, you can. So we, we set off on this adventure. Um, I was only 15 then, uh, found ourselves in this little village in the mountains of, of Bosnia after some adventures. And uh, we had a week there that really transformed our lives, you know, in terms of our, our personal faith uh, and in many, in many other ways too. And it's a place I go back to this, to this day. It's, it's called Medjugorje and uh, over a million pilgrims go there from around the world every day now. So it's grown into this place of, of international pilgrimage. But at that time, it was just a tiny little village, a bit like the one uh, where I live here in, in, in Scotland. So, yeah, that, that's probably why all those years later, when the war erupted there, we felt particularly moved to go and try and do something to, to help. That's amazing. So most people think that in order to start start doing something, especially the, to the we're going to talk about some of your growth to, to feeding, if, if my numbers are correct, 1.6 million children a day, every school day, right? That's right. That's incredible. So most people would just turn off and say, no way I could ever do something like that. So the the thing I find interesting is obviously when you had that moment of inspiration over a pint, you had no idea it would grow to this. And so what what do you say to encourage people that, you know, when you get sort of that pang in your stomach of maybe I should try to do something but they will shut it down very quickly because, oh, it will never amount to anything. I mean, what's, what do you say to, to tell people? What would you say to yourself then in that bar, 
having a pint. What do you say to people <laughs> like yourself in that position? Yeah, it's a great question, Nick, because you're right. I, I had no no idea at all that that was going to be a life-changing thing. I, I only took a one week off work to, to make that first delivery, and I expected to go back to, to work on the on the salmon farm uh, as normal. And, uh, you know, I suppose, like a lot of things, it's interesting to look back on it many years later in hindsight and try and make sense of it. And because I certainly was not qualified, and I'm still not qualified to, to lead a mission like, like this. Uh, and... and I suppose I'm, I'm in a way grateful, but I, I didn't have an awareness of what could happen. I think it would have frightened me, to be honest. I was a very, I was a very shy person at that stage. I was very lacking in confidence. I certainly would never have dreamt that I would end up leading a work uh, like this. So I'm kind of grateful that I didn't, that I didn't have any idea what, what was going to unfold. But I suppose in terms of your question, it does leave me feeling, you know, that it's so important that we do, do just step out when we can to do something that we that is in our power to do to help uh, someone else, even if it feels very small, you know, even if we might feel quite inadequate or uh, unqualified, that's certainly feelings I'm familiar with. But just by stepping out to do what you can, you, you never know. You never know what's going to happen. And even if it just ends up being that one small act, well, good, that can be wonderful in itself. But beyond that, things tend to happen, I notice, when people step out of their comfort zone a, a wee bit. Yeah. And, and the funny thing about it is when you start talking about this in the, in the realm of charities, most people don't really, well, people who've done it get it, but those who have, who have yet to start giving, uh, I was talking about this uh, the other day, it might've been on a podcast, might've been a private conversation, but when I first started out, I had a ton of student loan debt. I had a, a bunch of things and, and I'm a, I have a deep faith too. And I believe in the concept of tithing. I believe in the concept of tithing you know, 10% pre-tax. And there were so many people in my early career because I was struggling to make ends meet. And they kept saying, well, Nick, you know, you really got to stop that 10% thing until you get everything fixed over here. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's going to help me get yeah. it fixed over here. But, but until you begin that mindset, by the way, it's, it's also very similar to saving. Until you learn to save first, there's never enough money at the end to save. You must begin now. And so I would just say, you know, people who haven't tried this before in business, we're, we're often, uh, we're trained in many other places in our life to run a 5k. Well, you have to start, you have to get off the couch and you have to start doing a lap and a lap becomes, and before you know it, people get, they're running marathons or Spartan races or 100k miles, two day races. But we don't think about this in the realm of what could happen if we just stop to give. Now, the thing I love about the title of your new book is give is that it's not give back. A good friend of mine said one time, Nick, you don't need to give back unless you took it. And so the idea is not that we have some form of guilt. We all, quite frankly, most of us, especially if you're watching right now, you have an internet connection. Uh, you're most likely in heat or air conditioning. You most likely have had breakfast or maybe multiple meals today. You might be having a glass of wine. We're lucky. You know, I was born with no severe infirmities. Um, I, I said the other day to somebody, I can't really control uh, what the person on the other side of the road does today. I can't really control if my body's creating cancer cells. Like we're lucky. We're just lucky. So how about we just accept that gratitude and give? And so I love the title of the book and that you stepped out to do that. When you start doing the thing you're supposed to be doing, uh, the world shows up. And so that's what happened to you. So you you go on a one-week trip in a Land Rover. I'm not going to forget this. I'm very, very enamored. You go on a one-week trip in a Land Rover, and you come back, and you're expecting to go back to work. 
So the moment you come back, what happens? And this is what, in the 90s? Is that right? Uh, yeah, this was 92. I uh, came back. Uh, I'd asked my father if I could borrow his shed. He had a little garden uh, shed uh, in which he used to keep the old Land Rover, in fact. And I asked him if I could borrow it for a week to store the food and clothing that we were donated. So I came back at the end of that week to find this mountain of food and, 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 and clothing. Um, and that's when I, I really thought about it and, and prayed about it a little bit. And I decided to give up my job and I sold. I had, I had a small house. I sold it and somebody gave me a truck. I suppose that was the moment where I did step out of it. But I, I don't want that to sound like it was some scary moment or some massive sacrifice. I wasn't married. I didn't have any kind of family responsibilities as I do now. It would be much harder to make a choice like that at a different stage in life. So it felt like an easy choice to make. It felt like an adventure. It just, more than anything, felt like something I was meant to, to do. But I, I loved what you said earlier, Nick, about about that, that sense of, of tithing or giving before you're sorted. Because it's so easy, isn't it, to think, oh, I, you know, I need to have the, the, the master plan or I need to be have a certain amount of wealth or whatever before we can, we can do it. And, you know, I, when I was thinking about charity, when I was writing the book, I, I, I was thinking, you know, that I think any authentic act of charity will always involve a risk. There's always a risk involved if it's real. You know, so there might be a risk that we that we run out of money. Uh, there might be a risk that we look stupid because, you know, the person misuses the gift that, that, we, that we give them. There's a whole lot of risks because none of us can see the future. None of us are in control of, of, of the situation that we're trying to help a little bit. And, you know, so I suppose I was taking some risks then. It didn't feel like that. It wasn't a big weighty uh, moment in my life. And, and even then I thought, oh, I might do this for a few months. I didn't think I would be sitting here um, nearly 30 years later in my dad's shed. I never gave it back to him. Uh, it's become the global HQ of this, of this work. I never knew all of that. So it didn't feel like a momentous uh, decision. That's amazing. Yeah, I think the thing that people don't quite often realize is that you did what felt right to you in the moment. And so hearing it, from anyone else's point of view, it do, it's going to sound a little crazy. A lot of people are going to feel somewhat guilty. They've never they've never done that in their life. But that's that is not the point at all. And I just really want to get that across because it was just the right thing for you to do at the time. And I would just encourage people. It is that gut sense that you'll know when it's the right time. And, and no one here is advocating to sell your house, to run off to Bosnia. Like, that's not the point. The point is to answer the call when it comes. And so that that's what I think is is really great about this whole idea and concept. Now, all right, so you came back, you did that. What what happens next? Uh, you just start making regular treks? Yeah, exactly. Next 10, sorry, next probably three or four years, driving trucks back and forth, Scotland to Bosnia almost constantly, hugely steep learning curve, discovering I really did not have a clue about anything that I was trying to do, including driving trucks. I was very bad at driving trucks. And as, as the work grew, we had, to, we had to drive bigger trucks. We got to the big articulated trucks. And along the way, I met my future wife. She, she was uh, then a nurse uh, from Scotland who gave up her job to help uh, in Bosnia. And, and turned out very quickly that she was much better at driving trucks than I was, uh, became my co-driver, uh, passed her test before I did when we, when we had to go and set those truck driving tests. But learning all the time, that, you know, not just learning about how bad I was at driving trucks, but learning, uh, learning especially from the people I thought I'd gone to help uh, in the refugee camps. You know, le learning quite early in this journey that 
there's a real risk in doing this kind of work, like sort of becoming a professional aid worker, as it, as it were, that, that you can subtly start to think you identify as the giver. You know, I'm the, I'm the giver, or that person over there is just a passive receiver, you know, and, and suddenly starting, starting to think as a giver, I'm somehow superior uh, to, to the one in, in need, you know. And, and I remember those days getting to know people in those refugee camps and, and learning very quickly. There were many of them were people who were much better educated than I was, that's for sure. People who had had a much richer life experience than I had. And yet at that moment, they just happened to be in need of some help, you know, and it really started to form our thinking about that, about how do we do this work always in a way that really respects the person uh, that we're serving. Uh, and I think that that's a constant risk as we do this kind of work, that we, that we try, we have to try and keep it rooted in that. And I learned some early lessons about that in Bosnia. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, I was um, in February. I'm working with an organization that rescues Christians and religious minorities from ISIS in the Middle East. And I was filming in a Syrian refugee camp in Iraq in February. And uh, just the I I got to spend a little bit of time in the refugee camp. And it's yeah, it's people like you and me. It's just like I was so shocked a few years ago. My church went to feed the homeless and I said, oh, let's go. And I was so nervous, but I, I was absolutely shocked that it was mostly families like mine. They just fallen on hard times. Yeah. It it wasn't a lot of bums. It wasn't. It's mostly a yeah. mother, father, couple of children, sometimes single parents who just a lot of bad things had happened in a row, and they just needed some help. Exactly, and I think maybe these these times, these strange times we're living in right now, with the impact of of, of uh, coronavirus and all the new needs in our own communities and our own families. I think it reminds us of that again, isn't it? It's not about you know, just helping those people far away over there in that, in that place. It's it, it, it's all of us need help at, at, at times. It's not, we're never just a giver, are we, in life? There's times when we when, when we can give something and there are times when we need to ask for help as well. And some of us find that uh, a lot harder to, to ask for help than it is to, to give. But we're all in it together, aren't we? Not, not, none of us are, are, are independent and, and self-sustaining. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh... We have a lot of people who are live here. They're saying they're buying the book. They just pre-ordered it. So that's good. Make sure oh, wonderful. you buy Magnus's new book, Give. It comes out very shortly. And I can't wait to read it myself. The giver is the one who always wins, by the way, when, when given correctly. I mean, so at that in that same trip we were filming on, I got to go to the United Nations uh, out outside of the walls and there were families and young boys and people on their on their journey. They had lost everything in this case a lot of syrian refugees and they were it was such a a beautiful moment they were all waiting they're all dressed to the nines with the best things they could find and just had a sense of dignity for themselves that they were going to do interviews to be vetted because there's an australian program that will take syrian refugees to australia from iraq if they're vetted correctly and so they're going through their interviews and they know that so much of their future life relies on this day and it was just such a a somber yet excited yet nervous moment i just really felt for them and and the you know most of us are in our normal, regular lives every day that we, we, those are scary moments, by the way. Like it wasn't, I never, I never woke up one day and said, I can't wait to go to Iraq. Same thing. You probably didn't. I can't wait to go to Bosnia and Herzegovina. And so, and, and a lot of people will, I mean, those are extreme stories and they are interesting because they're places you just go, wow. But that really isn't what it's about. It's about putting yourself in a place to experience those moments where you can experience the joy and the heartbreak, by the way, of what others are going through and and have the chance to 
just get back a little bit more of your humanity. And I can tell you in those moments, it becomes very clear what you're supposed to do. In that case, all I could do, I couldn't communicate with these people at all. I just, I just sort of tried to smile reassuringly with them. You know, we, we had little, I'd wave at them and smile and like, give them a thumbs up. I mean, we, even though we have very different cultures, very different languages, I mean, there was a set of three boys that looked like a boy band. I mean, they were dressed so well. Their hair was perfectly done. You could just tell the pride that they had, that they were getting ready to go. And this is their next step in their life. And so uh, it's just, those are the moments that I need to experience more of too, by the way. But the key is, um, as you've said, the more we do these things, and obviously you've been, that's some amazing recognition from Time Magazine, from CNN. It's easy if you don't watch your heart, it's easy to get lost in that can build celebrity. I mean, it builds in a way people, uh, the ability for your, for your twisted brain that we all have and our broken hearts to make it about ourselves instead of, instead of what our mission is. How do you overcome that? What do you recommend to people who are getting into those positions? Yeah, no, I I think it's a great point. I I think that risk is very real. I, I, I don't think it's one that you just, that you just have an answer to and that's it. You've solved it. I think it's something, if if you're doing this kind of work, day in, day out, and strangely, people give you some kind of accolades for it. No matter how uncomfortable that might make you feel, and it does make me feel very uncomfortable, it can it, it can make you think the wrong way. Or, or not only that, you can, you can start to get driven by different motives than you began with. You can get driven by numbers, for example. So, you know, people are always amazed by the numbers of children that we're feeding every day. It's, you know, as you say, it's over 1.6 million children every day. It's incredible, and the number keeps growing. And that's great in a way, because there's more children that need fed, so we want to feed them. Uh, so the growth's good. You know, but subtle things can happen in your head, can't they? Like you start getting driven by the numbers, the big numbers, you know. And, you know, I think it's so important we, we bring it back to, what, why are we doing this? It's, it's the child, you know, in our case, feeding children. It's the child. It's, it's the individual child. How do we keep that? How, how do we keep that motive pure? You know, and, and, and I think that that does require a kind of, decision to do that to recognize the risk that, that i think you articulated very well and and, and proactively do things uh, about that so, so staying how do you stay connected to the children uh you, you know some of us have the privilege like you have of actually going sometimes and meeting the children and i've had that privilege over and over again and it certainly is a privilege more than anything else you know, sometimes people say to me when i'm traveling maybe to a country in africa or war zone oh that 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 must be so tough you know and I always feel guilty because, yeah, there are tough elements to it, but it's not, it's, it's not, it's the opposite. It's a privilege. It's uplifting, you know. So some of us have that, that privilege of, of knowing the children and that helps enormously in staying connected to why am I really doing this, you know, but, but, but not everyone has that privilege. So as an organization, one of our responsibilities, I feel, is how do we, how do we bring the child close to the donor in, in Iowa that's feeding the child in, Liberia, you know, how, how do we do that? How, how, how do we really work our communication so that that feels real and in an appropriate way? How does that feel uh, real, that, that, that connection? And so we, we do some slightly unusual things. Like I have a real aversion to targets, for example. You know, a, a lot of people that have come in and worked with us, we were just actually having a strategic conversation this afternoon about our next three-year growth plan. And, and the newer members of our team were kind of looking at me like I'd like I'm crazy, you know what I'm saying? I don't like number targets because because I think we start, if we're not careful, we start serving 
the plan rather than the, the child. And we start thinking we're in control of everything when we never are, you know. So, of course, we need a plan. Of course, we need a strategy. And, of course, we need goals of some sort. But we need to watch that subtle shift, you know, from the child to the numbers, what makes me successful and uh, important. So, yeah, I, I, and I don't pretend to know all the answers. And, by the way, the things you've called out, like, the CNN thing and the time thing. It's not like that happens to me a lot. They're just two very strange things that happen uh, in my life. I'm not normally in that kind of environment. I'm normally sitting here in the shed surrounded by all my pals of the guys I grew up here with in, in the village. And that certainly helps. It keeps you, you grounded as, as well. One thing I think is really a cool thing to think through too, you, you, your insight there is so crystal clear, but yet, I don't know, mind-blowing in that uh, I think we do that same thing in business a lot of times where we start it for a reason. And then at some point we let the numbers drive us rather than continuing to serve the people who we are, that we set out to serve. And that's when, that's really when it becomes no fun. So I just would encourage people out there, whether it's a, a nonprofit, a charity or, or a business you're running, remember the reason you started it and and constantly check check your heart to see, am I yeah. am I serving the numbers or am I serving the people? I just think we don't, that's a really great insight that we don't stop to ask nearly often enough. Now, the way you do this, I find is really cool because technically you're feeding on these children, but you added in something that is easy to gloss over, but is mind-blowingly smart. You feed them at places of education. So tell me about the reason for this, what this does and, and how that works. Yeah. And, and again, you know, it's a beautiful, simple, effective thing, but again, I didn't, it wasn't my idea, Nick. Uh, <laughs> What happened was by 2002, we'd been doing this work for 10 years that we described that started in Bosnia and we'd started working in various countries, really where we were invited. And we'd got involved in all kinds of work from opening homes for children who were HIV positive in Romania to primary healthcare projects in Liberia, all sorts of, of things. And we did all that in the name of Scottish International Relief. It was the first organization we founded. And then in, in 2002, we began working in Malawi for the first time, Southeast Africa, a year of terrible famine that year, many millions of people facing starvation. And we were involved in a very simple emergency feeding pro program, taking food into certain villages. And wh while we were doing that, I met this family and they were living in a small mud brick house. And the, the father of the family had died not long before I met them. And the, and the mother was now dying as well. Uh, she was called Emma, and she had six children, and they were sitting all around her. And I began talking to her oldest uh, child. He was called Edward. He was 14 years of age. And maybe like any of us would do when we're talking to a young person we meet for the first time, at one point in the conversation, I said, Edward, what's your, what's your hope in, in life? What's your ambition? And he, he looked at me and he said, uh, I'd like to have enough food to eat. And I would like to be able to go to school one day. And, and that was it. That, that was the extent of his ambition at 14 years of age. And I, I'd met lots of children like that before in, in different parts of the world who were missing school because they were hungry, because they were working, uh, because they were begging on the street corner, because they were just doing whatever they needed to do to put the next meal on the table and therefore missing out on their education, missing out on their only possible uh, ladder out of, of poverty. So I'd thought about that before, I'd, I'd encountered it before, but it was really only when Edward said that, I really started to think more deeply about that that link between food 
and education, or that link between hunger and, and missing uh, education. You know, and of course, we're not the first people to think about serving meals in schools. We Most of us take it for granted. I certainly did. Uh, you know, I, I never, had, on my school days, had to worry about whether I would eat at, at school. Those words of Edward really prompted this journey. And, and I love I love it, actually, the fact that this whole movement that's growing around the world was prompted by the words of that of that child. So yeah, it was it was only a few months after that conversation we served the first Mary's meals in in uh, Malawi, drawing on on what we'd learned all those years uh, before that. So how does this work? So uh, again, I, I am fascinated by the numbers just from an operations standpoint. How do you feed 1.6 million children a day? How many? villages are you in who provides the food how is it prepared how how does this work yeah well maybe in terms of the basic model you know again it, it very much grew out of of what we'd learned in, in the years before that and you know a couple of things were really key from the beginning the first of all was that that we felt if this was really going to work in any meaningful way it had to be owned by the local community it could never be something owned by us charging in from outside thinking we had the solutions. So so that took the form of, you know, when we had that idea in Malawi after I'd met Edward, we had meetings in, in, in some of the communities there. And we said, look, we've got this idea that we won't go forward with this idea unless you believe in it. You know, we won't go forward with it unless you want to volunteer your time and take responsibility for the daily cooking and serving of the meals. And immediately the, the people who'd come to those meetings said, yes, yes, this is what we want for, for our children. And the other part of the model that we were linked to that one was that as much as possible, we wanted the food to be locally grown, to be sourced locally so that we would help the, the local farmers, so we would help the local economy. And that in, in Malawi came, became a corn soya blend, a porridge a mixture called Lukuni Power, all of the ingredients grown in, in Malawi and fortified with vitamins and and minerals. You say vitamins, don't you? Not vitamins, but that's what we call them here. And, and uh, so, so that's how we began. You know, that local ownership being key, and that's how it works to this day. So, whenever we go and in, are invited into a new community, that's the first thing to establish. Are you, are you willing to take responsibility for this? We're never going to come in here and do everything. We're going to help you uh, if you can't afford to buy the food right now. That's that's our part. So, so when we go forward like that, then our job becomes about buying that food transporting it to the school. We help the community build a kitchen and a storeroom. But again, as much of that as possible by them, we ask them to do that. And they, most of that is done by the community. And and then we monitor it. You know, our, our team would visit the schools at least twice a week, stock take the food, make sure it's been used the way it's intended to be used, and, and train at, at the, the volunteers and health and safety and hygiene and all those things. And then those those uh, members of our staff, they would also be responsible for collecting the data that proves the impact of the project, collecting data around is the school enrollment increasing, is attendance rates improving, uh, is academic performance improving, so all, the, all those things. So it's a very, very simple model that we just replicate village after, after village. So we're... We're now in 19 countries, so those nearly 1.7 million children are spread across 19 countries and very different environments, very different cultures, some different aspects to the delivery model in terms of some of it's through partner organisations, some of it's through our own entities that we've founded in those uh, countries. But at, at the grassroots level, that model I described is, is always pretty much 
the same wherever we are. Another thing you talk about uh, in the new book is about the, I wouldn't say disdain, but the the mistrust of a lot of charities. And some people do have a disdain for the way they've seen money uh, be mismanaged, we'll say. So what, what do you, what do you say to people to help them regain that trust? And what do you say, what do you say to other charities to help them, to help them regain the trust of their people? Maybe the, the second of those questions, first of all, I mean, it's not a small thing, is it? To be to, to find yourself in a position where you're stewards of other people's gifts, you know that you that you you have responsibility to try and make those little acts of love effective in someone's life far away. It's it's a big thing, you know, and and I think it's a big thing in another sense as well because you touched on on scandals or at least things that sometimes disillusion people about charity, and that, if we get it wrong and in, in and how we organize charity and how we how we treasure those gifts or, or otherwise it has a broader impact doesn't it it can leave people feeling disillusioned it can feel people leave people feeling less inclined towards supporting charity so we have a huge responsibility and i think so much of that is you know i love that conversation we had earlier nick about about that respect for people at the heart of it about going back to why why do we do this and i think if organizations lose that, not just individuals, but organizations and their leadership lose that or, or allow a disconnect to form between, um, between the organization and the people that it's serving, that, that's when problems will arise sooner or later. It, it, it's inevitable. So I, I think that's crucial. And I think part of that is also I feel about really knowing and understanding your organizational values your own identity that, that for me is is something that's so important and, it, and again it requires a little bit of boldness i think because i think organizations are a little bit like people you know especially as we grow up when we're younger you know we ha- we can really be influenced by our peers can't we we think well we have to be like that because everyone else is like that you know rather than saying no i'm a unique person i'm not going to be like that you know i might learn from that person but i'm not going to be that that person and I think organizations are a little bit like that as well. You know, we can make the mistake of thinking, well, we need to become like everyone else or, or we mission drift. You know, we, we go with, oh, that, that's where the funding is these days. Let's do that right. uh, kind of work now. And we find out we're actually not very good at it. You know, and, and that's one of the reasons why we, st- we stay focused on this one simple thing we do, because we, we know it works. We believe it's crucial. And we know that we can, we're not experts in everything else. We're not experts in agriculture or water or HIV AIDS. We want to be experts in fuel feeding, though. We want to be very, very good at, at that. But around that, not, not just the focus of the mission, but for us, we say the way we do this work is as important as the end results. And that's about our values, about our culture, about our identity. So Mary's Meals aspires to be the best version of Mary's Meals that we can. We don't aspire to be some other big organization. And I think that's so important, especially as an organization grows and more and more people get involved. You know, we need to really pay attention to that as leaders. Do we understand that? Do we live it? Do we take time when new people join our mission to ensure that they understand it and share it as well? Uh, So that's just a few thoughts, Nick, around that stuff. Those are great. Now, being a guy who's directed an awful lot of documentaries, I haven't seen yours yet. Tell Tell us about the documentary you guys made. The last one we did was quite exciting because uh, it's it's got Gerard Butler in it, Jerry Butler, we call him in Scotland, and uh, it, was, it was quite a funny story how I met him. You mentioned that CNN 
Heroes Award, which was two thousand and ten in LA, and they they the way they do that is they they team a celebrity uh, with each recipient of the award. So probably for obvious reasons, Jerry being Scottish and uh, and me too, they they asked him to present me with the award on the night. So I'd never met him before, didn't really know much about him. Uh, so I went on the stage, he gave me the award, and we went, we did our speeches, and we went off. And as we went off, he said, Magnus, I, I need to get a selfie with you to send my mother, or I'll be in big trouble. Uh, so it turned out his mother had been a big supporter of our mission for many years, and, and unbeknownst to me. And uh, so he kind of turned the whole thing in his head straight, straight away. And then we just became became friends, you know, and he, he, he loves our work, and he was saying very early on, I'd love to come can I come with you to some of the places where you work? You know, so first of all, he came to Liberia and in, in West Africa. Uh, we had an amazing time there, and there was a film crew with us filming. We didn't have a specific plan for that footage. We did one or two bits and pieces with it, and then more recently, he came back to me and said, "Can we go? I love that. Can we do it again?" And so we went to Haiti, uh, and we had an incredible time there. Really incredible time. You know what it's like. I'm sure making documentaries is a lot better than me, but. Some of the best things certainly aren't the planned things. Oh, things yeah, just yeah. unfold, you know. And that's very much what we did. We just went there and we met the communities that we that, that we serve and hung out with them and 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 tried to understand their lives better. And out of that emerged these beautiful encounters. So we filmed all that, and and out of that, there's a there's a, a, a documentary being made called Love Reaches Everywhere, and that kind of became the theme of it. How this we talked earlier about how do we stay rooted in what the original motive was and when i think about that it's about you know this is a work of love first of all we can talk about our strategies and our goals and our financial management all those important things but it's a work of love uh first of all and we can't we can't lose that so yeah it, it was it's good fun traveling with jerry because he's he's a very entertaining very very funny individual so uh yeah we've had some good laughs traveling to different places and the film that he's enabled us to make has been really uh, it's a wonderful film and it's helped us reach so many new new people and, and invite them into our mission. I, I can't wait to check it out. I too have filmed in Haiti and it is a fascinating place. There's there's a lot happening down there. So uh, I know what it's like. The, uh, it certainly is. Yeah. You're, you're also, by the way, you're the second Scotsman I've had on my show. Uh, there's a, a musician. I, I think he's probably more famous over here than he is over there. Uh, do you know Jamie Kimmett at all? The The singer? Yeah, I've heard the name. I've heard the name, yeah. Incredible, incredible singer. I'll, I'll introduce you. You need to know him. He's he's amazing. Oh, yeah. Just one of the best Please. voices and a great heart. And uh, so anyway, I'll, I'll connect you. He used to busk. Please. Uh, uh, yeah, singing and, and <laughs> yeah. good stuff. Like most, like most yeah. artists. I'm going to let you have the last word, but I got to read a passage from your book that uh, you probably don't have memorized, but it's one of the most impactful pieces of prose I've ever read, quite frankly. I'm going to read it real quick. Um, you say, and we do not need to wait until we feel good about ourselves in order to begin. If we find ourselves trapped in a shadow, dark as death, bound by self-pity or self-hate with no way out, then let us begin anyway. We have nothing to lose by lighting one little candle for our neighbor. We do not have to believe we are good in order to do something good. But when we try it, we may find that, in fact, there is indeed something good in us after all. Man, that comes from years and years of depth. Start today. That's what that says to me. It doesn't matter where you're at. And actually, in fact, if you are in a dark place, most of the time looking, you've probably been looking inside too much. You need to look outside and serve someone else and it will bring you to a better place of hope. That's what I found in life. Is, is that sort of the message there? 
Yeah, absolutely. No, I, 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 yes, I think you said it better than I could. I, I think that thing you said earlier too is about to avoid that thing of thinking it has to be something spectacular. I always worry about that when we tell the story of Mary's Meals because some amazing things have happened that, I, that way beyond uh, my control or anything to do with me. And, and it, there's a risk that people think, oh, that has to be like that. And it doesn't. It's just about doing the thing that's in front of us each day. And there's things in front of all of us each day uh, that, that we can do to help to help other people. That's for sure. I love it. Well, hey, uh, everyone needs to check out uh, your new book, Give. You can pre-order it now where all books are pre-orderable all around the world. Uh, what's the what's the best website for them to go learn more too? For the book, uh, you buy it on Amazon. It's probably the easiest way. It's available lots of places, but probably Amazon. And if you want to know more about the, the work of Mary's Meals, uh, just type in Mary's Meals uh, and you'll find our website. Sounds great. Hey, well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, good luck on the new book. Can't wait, can't wait for the world to see it. And uh, I'll look forward to catching up again soon. And I'll, I'll make a... I'll make an introduction to my other favorite Scotsman for you. Do that, Nick. I love talking to you. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I look forward to talking again sometime. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes.